Actually, let me grab you and take you over to the sofa so I can get cozy. Get cozy and cozy. That was what while we were working on Orange's 11s, we had a, a joke about calling the album Love Comfy. Yeah, after Love Sexy by Prince. So we, we thought that Orange's Lemons is going to be a Love Comfy. <laughs> What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? Hello everybody, uh, my name is Mark Fisher. I have been writing about XTC since longer than anybody can remember, since I was in short trousers, and the man responsible for this um, terrible abuse of my work since I was 16 or something is Andy Partridge, and Andy Partridge is with us now. Andy, how are you? Oh, no, I'm not with you at all. No, I'm not with you. I'm not going to be with you. You've been writing about us forever, before pencils were invented, I think. I think we had to invent the pencil so that I could write about you. Yeah, you were you were blowing um, ochre through your hand onto a cave wall in patterns that were all about XTC. That's, that's exactly right. And still you exploit me, and still I here I am, 57 years <laughs> later. Yes. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Well, and Andy, welcome to the uh, what do you call that noise? The XDC podcast, which has been great fun to do. This technically is episode two and a half. I think we've got another one that we're due to do later in the week, um, and um, it's been tremendous to talk about you. But what, how do, how do you find the idea that people might still be talking about about you and XDC all, all you know all these years? After the last album. I think they should get a life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's very nice. It's very warming, actually. That's the word I would use. It's very warming. It's it's really lovely to know that despite Virgin EMI United, uh, sorry, Universal, losing your your tapes, uh, it's nice to know that you're music has been liked and enjoyed over the years by so many people it, it's unimaginable you know as a kid I thought yeah I'd like to be in a pop group and have girls chase me down the street like the Beatles or the Monkeys or whatever and um and then when you become an adult you, you know you're not interested in that you kind of I want to make that connection with people I want to build those little bridges to see if people can use the the things I can carve out of words and chords and things. And I don't know if you, you, you've, uh, you're aware, but there's a thing about um, making plans for Nigel in today's Guardian, actually, and the online version of it, it's um, Colin and Terry have been interviewed about it, but the online version, if you go below the line, which is normally a thing that you should be very scared of. Going below the line is where <laughs> the best stuff always is. <laughs> and, but the last time I looked, uh, which was probably yesterday, um, there was already something like 80 comments, and every single one of them was, XTC are the best band ever, they're the most underrated, whatever. And it was quite remarkable, actually, given that the, uh, the sort of contentious nature of pop music, that uh, there was such a sort of well, outpouring of, of, of yeah. love. Of grief. Of grief, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, that, that's, again, that's very warming. Um, and it's a, just a little bit sad that we've got to be on the verge of knocking on death's door before people will go, you know what, they were a good band. Yeah, and do you, know actually, one of... you know what I've been doing today? I'm a little bit hoarse because I've been singing along, but I've um, I, I forced my distorted and split warped door open today and got into the shed. I daren't close it because I'll never get out again, and I I don't want it to be my mausoleum in there. Um, but I've been transferring, um, doing a project where I, I've been transferring every uh, bootleg of live XTC I can get my hands on. Uh, Many of them have been cheekily sent to me in the past, you know, by people. Hey, Andy, look what I'm doing. I'm selling your music and you can't stop it. Ha ha. And we'll see who has the last laugh. But I've been um, listening to this outrageous early live stuff, uh, 77, 78, 79. And Jesus, we were one fierce band. I I agree. I I saw you twice in uh, whatever, the 1980, 82, whatever, just before you stopped touring. And um, and that was, you were my entry, entry drug to the life, the world of live music. Because I think you were the first band that I saw. And and really, you know, my memory might be distorted, but you were at the top. So I really did start at the top. 
So everyone else was a terrible disappointment. <laughs> it's a life of disappointment ever since. Well, it, it, you don't realise how fierce this hurricane is when you're at the eye of it. And when you're at the eye of it, you just kind of, it's like a weird calm. And uh, you can see everything going on around you, but you don't realise that you're sat in the cockpit of this unearthly flying saucer type device that is making these fierce, I mean, fierce is the word. I, uh, playing these things this afternoon, putting them into the computer and blah, da da da, just uh, sort of cataloging them all. And I'm thinking, whoa, listen to that. That is, that would scare me away from a venue. Uh, it would. If I was this age now or slightly younger and seeing a band that sounded like that, I would probably run screaming from the venue in in uh, with with a trauma incident but uh, yeah so it's it's really fierce stuff and i hadn't realized how fierce and how tight and shocking it was do you think there was a moment when xtc clicked from a live point of view and and became that that sort of machine that 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 was just relentless and didn't pause you didn't pause in between songs it was just bang 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 it was it was tremendously um, impressive was there a point when you, you suddenly got that no, I don't think I got it at all while we were functioning live. I think it took me many years away from it to not nostalgically look at it, but to think, oh, yeah, we did that at one time. That was really the, the, the soul. It was like making records was almost like a, that was like a, almost an afterthought or something. You know, it was the playing live that was, the real important stuff and um but but today i had a little bit of a mini revelation playing this this music which i i found kind of unearthly and scaring and was there, and was there a point early on like you know whether it, i don't know whether it would be helium kids days or or early xtc where where you went from being uh whatever you might call yourselves a sort of ramshackle pub rock band into into being you know professional i suppose one it is one word that you could use for it but uh, as efficient as as a, as a as a working live band can be well funny you should bring up the helium kids because i've also yesterday i was um going through some helium kids recordings i had I'm, I'm not too sure where the hell they're from and i was seeing if i could cheer them up with with little compression and eq and limiting and blah blah see if i could get them to sound a bit more decent to my ears and um, even though they're kind of turgid uh, and sludgy, there's still there's still more energy than a lot of bands around in 1973, 1974. Who probably were actually called turgid and sludgy. They were they were they were a prog rock group at the time. Really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> fifty minute bass solo, fifty minute yeah Hammond organ solo. Uh, 50 minutes uh, uh, scratch board solo. Um, <laughs> no, so I've been kind of, how shall I say, what's the word? Um, sort of museuming. What's the word I'm looking for? Archiving. Archiving, that's the word. And is that, and is that what you are doing? Have you got any intention to, to do anything with this stuff? I knew you'd ask me this. Well, I'm yeah, not well you did, you brought it up. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. But um, it'll be good. It'll be good. Uh, no, I but I you know I've had to, especially hearing hearing some of the early live uh, 77 78 79 stuff we made a big leap in sort of how shall I say intentional professionalism when Dave came on board but there was and and to some extent we were slightly less original uh, that's not Dave's fault that's nobody's fault that's just which way we were going we were tired of the angular spiky stab you in the ears stuff by then we'd done two years of it um uh but you know being away from hearing that stuff from 77 78 it was I was a little shocked and, and delighted well does it feel like being you know listening to another band because it was so long ago now Oh yeah, it's it's another planet. You know, I feel like I'm his great great grandfather. You know, this this skinny hairy kid with, uh, and inevitably my voice is shot and hoarse. 
it's even worse than it is now, you know, because you've been you've been touring forever and you you're totally blown your voice and uh, and you're constantly trying to get your breath in between doing stage announcements, which can be very cryptic because your brain is going at a thousand miles an hour. Despite the Valium, uh, <laughs> a thousand mile, despite the beer and and Valium, it's going a thousand miles an hour, and uh, you, you're you're, um, you're garbling hoarsely some gibberish in between these fierce slabs, these oral sculptures made of broken glass. I'm glad you're saying this because I, I definitely have that memory of listening to bootlegs, probably not just by you, but, you know, but all, all kinds of live stuff. And you're kind of thinking, what, what are they saying? <laughs> what is that noise they're making between yeah, yeah, A lot of it is just out of breath. You just... And was, was there a fear as well? Because like the, 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 that degree of energy and, and also coming out of that punk era where it was... De rigueur to, to pogo and spit and all the rest of it. Was, was there a sort of fear that you, you that you just had to plough your way through to, to to keep people's attention? You didn't want to do a sort of long-winded introduction in the middle of a song because you might just lose everybody. Uh, to some extent, but the fear, if anything, was the fear was not of the energy from the crowd or even the spitting, or you know, is your amp going to give up the ghost or anything like that? The fear is just old-fashioned. Um, the number one uh, phobia going, which is public speaking, public engagement, you know. Mm -hmm. I think that and spiders are, t are still number one and two in the phobia charts. Uh, so you, you're sat in the dressing room and you get that classical, you get really tired before you're about half an hour before you're due on stage. And we'd be laying out, sleeping. And uh, people say, well, really? You thought we'd be all amped up and know what happens. And, and I thought I thought I was insane going, you know, falling asleep a few minutes before being due on stage. And I, I read Pete Townsend said that, yeah, he'd come over really sleepy a few moments before they had to go on stage and he'd, he'd fall asleep for a few moments. So it must be a body protection thing. But um, yet the spitting was horrendous. That was just something the blinding scum storm of gob that you had to plow through. And it was really something made up by newspapers. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that it ever happened at all, isn't it? You kind of think, did that really happen? No, I know. Um, and it's because you're running, it's like you're in two different time zones. The audience is in one time zone and they're all bouncing up and down in slow motion. And then they're throwing stuff at you and you, oh, here comes a can of beer, spinning, spinning, spinning in ultra slow motion through the air. So you just move your head aside because you're moving. Time is like normal for you, but it's you've got so much adrenaline in you. It's it appears as if it's everything's going slow motion for them. And like you're observing your audience, the film of your audience is running cranked way down slow you know we we did um we did a gig in scotland somewhere some university was it dundee or somewhere we drove 13 hours through snow drifts to get to this to get to this gig and it was um some like the last night the dance of the last night of the year or whatever and they had massive stacks of beer cans free for the students because everyone was out of their skulls, <laughs> free beer. And they were, they were so drunk and bored with drinking beer, they were picking these cans out, ring pulling like a hand grenade and throwing full cans of beer at us. But they were coming over in slow motion and you had no trouble dodging them because everything off of the stage and outside of the four of the band is running in slow motion. You're at normal speed, but to them, you're ultra fast. So it, did, it didn't. It didn't make you aggressive in return. It was because your 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 head was just in a different place altogether. Yeah, yeah. You're trying to remember what the next line is, the next chord, and the next thing you've got to do. Or uh, uh, oh, and you you can see that you know you can see missiles coming over, and you can dodge most of them. Occasionally, one will catch you blindsided, you know, but. Um, and sometimes you're on stage and you're you're in a kind of zen state and you 
I, I've said this before, but sometimes you'd be on stage and you'd disappear into a kind of meditation and you'd be like dreaming and thinking, I wonder what sort of furniture I shall go for when I'm older. <laughs> You know, will I will I like leather chairs, or will it be like tapestry-backed chairs, or you know, will I if I ever make any money at this game, will I go and collect nineteen fifties furniture, the sort of stuff my parents had, you know? And you find yourself drifting off into these these weird Zen dreams, and then of course you come back to think, oh, I got a this is the chorus, I'm singing this in harmony with Colin. And it sort of jolts you, you know. You you don't miss a cue, but you you drop into these microscopic dream states. And I suppose because you were playing so much, you know, it was like three quarters of the year you'd be on the road. So you, yeah, I can imagine that happening. You, it was just that thing of repetition. It must must be yeah. like uh, muscle memory or whatever the, the the phrase would be. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, most of the songs of XTCs I can remember to play are the ones that um, were the most complex ones that we played live a lot. Um, I can't remember how to play anything from the not live albums, or hardly anything from that. But um, I, I've still got every part of Rhodes Girdle the Globe seared laser-like into my muscle memory. You're the only one, you're the only one in the world who knows how to play that song. <laughs> I can still play it now. I, I can remember every bit of it because it was so complex and we played it so many times and you think, well, I don't want to fuck this up. I've got to remember this properly, you know, and Dave's doing his kind of weaving in bit as well. It's, it's like this weird metal tapestry we're doing. Uh, but I can still, I can, I can still play it now. I'm not going to sing it, but it, an acoustic guitar, it, the intro is something like... See what I mean? Yeah, then, we, yeah. then we get. And so, and then the verse goes. so on but um and i don't know why i can still remember those because they're all non-chords or they're all chords that would have very long fancy names and none of which i i know what they're called and, and with that song in particular uh this is this is such a privilege by the way i'm just sitting here getting a personal <laughs> a personal gig <laughs> from andy partridge it's just that stupid thing of why on earth would i remember all the difficult to play things uh from the live years um, but nothing that's even more difficult, possibly, from the studio years, because and, and, you know that you've only got to get those right once. And and, and on the theme of um, difficulty, was it with Rhodes Girdle the Globe? Did as a band, did you ever just think, well, oh yeah, fine, putting it on drums and wires, but we we won't we won't actually play it live, or or were you just um, no, you know, willing I, enough to give it a go? I really wanted to get that out live. I, it was it was a joy to play live because when Terry hit that kind of stately pace. It felt nice on the body, you know. It was a, it was a break from some of the more frantic, um, jagged stuff. And um, th that thing about what you've been doing today, listening back to to the, those yeah, sort of things. archiving stuff, really cataloging, archiving, thinking wow where did they get that gig from or what what sneaky little bugger had uh you know recording equipment at the back of the room in that gig um so i'm just amazed the the stuff i i have that i didn't realize i had that that people had sent me and the bootleggers i remember the bootleggers getting um incredibly sophisticated i remember going to gigs where 
you would be on your way out to the gig and they were all, they already somehow had the tapes <laughs> that they were selling to the people on the way out and they somehow, somehow managed to produce them. It doesn't, doesn't Well, matter. I remember doing a show, I think it was in Washington, um, and the tour manager at the time was Paul Bailey, uh, not Pearl Bailey, that's a famous spelling mistake of Paul Bailey. Paul Bailey, we were sort of toweling down and getting dressed, you know, all the sweaty clothes were in a big pile in the corner, sodden, sweaty, we're putting on fresh t-shirts and jeans and stuff. And he came in with uh, boxes of tapes and said, there you go, that's tonight's show. And I said, well, where'd you get those from? He said, I've discovered, come with me, I've, I've made a little discovery. And we walked back up on stage. The venue was empty and they were taking the gear down. We walked back up on stage. He opened a door. We walked down a corridor. And behind the stage was a fully equipped recording studio hidden away. Blimey. That uh, <laughs> was recording the bands and artists that appeared at this club. So it was like an official racket going on. It was an official bootleg racket uh, from from this, this club. And uh, he said, well, you know, there's your souvenir. I, I just went in and I just took the tapes off of them. So, uh, you know, we've we've defeated one bootlegging operation. But uh, it makes me wonder how many how many more sort of setups like that there was. And there must be quite a lot. I would have thought of XCC gigs that were recorded directly off the desk. Is that is that true to say? Rather than yeah, um... uh, I think our sound man from most of the touring years, Steve Warren, has probably got. Um, quite a few uh, gigs on cassette because he'd usually run a copy off of, you know, he'd, he'd usually run off any gig that we did. It's just a revelation that I'm uh, discovering the kind of like um, I'm seeing the band, I'm seeing the 7778 band for the first time today. And from that's what I was just thinking that thing of, of you, you could listen without ego. So, you, well, I'm putting words into your mouth here, but can you listen without ego? And, and so you're not just listening to what you were playing, but also how the whole band knitted together. Uh, absolutely. Um, if anything, I'm, I'm listening more to the, the band as a whole. You know, before if I if I'd heard live stuff, I'd just be thinking, "Oh, you got that chord wrong," or "Ouch, that's a little bit out of time of you, Andy," or "Oh, you is one note wrong in that little run up you did there," or whatever it was. You know, you're out of your singing's out of tune because you're trying to do that fancy run at the same time as singing. Do one or the other, boy. You know, <laughs> but uh, that's that's why Dave used to do all the all the fancy stuff live. I couldn't do the fancy stuff and sing. And yeah. You must have you had that thing as well when you were playing live that there were just certain gigs, you know, every every fifth Wednesday when suddenly it would all click and everything would be even better than ever. Well, it was kind of one in ten gigs were legendarily good. Uh, and it was something like that amount because if there's four people in there, but <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is a little hoarse tonight, a mixture of pollen and singing along, uh, with these tapes um the uh, one in ten because four people on stage somebody might have a bum night so there's four of those to consider mm -hmm. actually i don't know what the what's 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 the mathematical number if there's four people on stage and three of them are having a good night and somebody's having a bad night there's got to be some, <laughs> some weird uh linear kind of curve of of amounts of do you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. like dice throws anyway so you got one in four people then uh you could have bad monitoring on stage um then you could have good monitoring on stage and everyone's playing great but the outside sound is bad and there's something wrong with the outside sound or everything is perfect and the audience aren't interested they don't know who you are because you're in some remote outpost in northern canada and they just don't know or care about who you are. Um, or the sound man's having a bad night and he just, you know, he's at a row with somebody, the lighting man or whatever. And Oh, there's another thing. If the lights aren't happening or the lights, if you, or the power goes in the venue, you know, there's but about one in 10 gigs, everything would come together and it would be just, you know, you would, you would be totally and utterly in 
heroin nod out bliss uh, at the end of the show because everything was just great everyone was happy everyone was flying um, and would you all as band members would you all agree with each other that that was a that was a good gig yeah you didn't even have to say anything it was just the faces said everything the the vibe in the air everything but you you knew it if somebody was having a duff one well, I never thought I was going to be talking to you about live gigs. Is it? Well, not me <laughs> because... either. It's just I had that <laughs> because... little sort of personal revelation this afternoon. But you, you talk about what you want to talk about. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking because live gig is it's like almost like a taboo topic these days, and because it's so boring when everybody says, "Oh, they're going to get back together, right? We're going to play live." Well, and you have been you have been saying that since 1982. Yeah, the answer is no. Yes. Uh, uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't talk about it, dissect it, joke about it. You know, whatever. It happened. You know, it's done. It's it, it was, it was like, oh, World War Two was so much fun. Yeah, well, it's over now. You know? <laughs> yes. We had a time machine. I could take you back, and you could you could storm the beaches or whatever you want to do. You know, but it's it's a moment in history. It's done. Um, Actually, how much attention have you paid to you know people like Fossil Fossil Fools and 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 you know the live the live cover bands. Uh, that are keeping men in, you know, in Australia and America and the UK. Yes, that, that some of them are really good. Somebody sent me a link with, oh God, I can't remember where they were, and they did a, a fantastic melt the guns. Um, that was probably as good or maybe better than when we were doing it live. Uh, it was really excellent. It was an American. It was a, a, a sort of a fan gathering. I think they do it every year. All uh, right. But uh, I was really astounded how good this Mount the Guns was. And uh, poor old Terry, who's had his um, XTC, EXTC project, uh, kind of knocked on the head by the virus at the moment. I feel yeah. really bad for him. Because... My, my, my ticket now is going to be a collector's item. It's one of those tickets for the gig that never happened. Oh, I'm sure they'll, I'm sure when it, with this is all. Um, over and done with them, we're all dead. Um, I'm sure they'll be putting the show back on. Yeah? You mean the Edinburgh gig? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the perfect thing for me living in Edinburgh, having <laughs> having the gig I most wanted to go and see right on my doorstep. But they'd be good. I saw some uh, some recordings of um, the couple of gigs they did in the pub in Swindon, the Vic, and it was pretty good. But I'm, I was just thinking to myself, you know what? When they've done a few dozen shows they're going to be really good and really tight um you know you you can't just you can't just pick up the violin and be Yehudi menuing on day one you know yeah well if you think about you you know if you're talking about 1978 79 by that time you'd already been on the road effectively for five years or something playing every uh, yeah on and off yeah. yeah we didn't have we didn't have so many pre-77 we didn't do so many gigs and in fact, if we could get any gigs at all, no matter where they were, working men's clubs, pubs, anything, uh, private barbecues, um, uh, private parties, we we do them. You know, we did a, a notoriously odd one. I think it was in Warminster in Wiltshire where somebody said, yeah, we're having a little mini festival in our back garden. And uh, we got a stage and uh, we got a PA and uh, if we go down there, you, you'll be able to play and it'd be great. All the beer and food will be free. It'd be fantastic. Of course, you get down there and it's pouring with rain and they've decided not to build the stage. The PA they said they were going to get isn't there. Um, and uh, because it was raining and nobody turned up. So we decide to do a gig in their front room with our full equipment. <laughs> with our PA, our stacks and drums and everything. And the what's left of the audience, about two dozen of them, just poked their heads around the door of the living room because they couldn't get in there as well because we were filling it up with all the gear. But before we, um, before we went on carpet, we didn't really go on stage, before we went on the carpet, we went to the, the local pub and uh, poor old Colin had somebody um, uh, slip he thinks some LSD into his drink, into his beer. And uh, he was feeling really interesting about halfway through the set. You <laughs> see the drugs years, the drug, the yeah. drug afternoon. <laughs> oh, I remember the, the whole thing being an incredibly noisy farce. Um, and me trying to sleep in the back of my girlfriend's 
um, what were those Shakespearean cars look like that had a long sort of half timbered back on it? What would you call one of them? Um, Morris Traveller, was it? Yes. I think it was a Morris Traveller. It looks like a sort of, you know, Anne Hathaway's car. <laughs> um, I remember trying to sleep in the back of it. I just could not sleep and just spent most of the the uh, you know most of the night wandering around the graveyard by where the car was parked so a surreal ending to a to a very surreal gig what do you call that noise and um, the reason for um, doing this podcast is that we're all in lockdown right now we're talking on zoom because everybody's talking on zoom and it's the way to to, to go and um quite a lot of people are feeling a bit uh, depressed and repressed and locked in and so we thought that um, i thought it would be good to Tell everybody that everything everything will be all right. <laughs> that's that's a real easy one. Um, it's only uh, three, four chords in it. Uh, C, C and G, and F, C, F and G. There you go. You can't go wrong with those. Can't go wrong with everything will be all right. Be all right, day and night time, and so on. And then you go up to a D. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. C F, C, F, and G, and then you throw in a D occasionally. You can't, you, you can't fail to learn it. It's stupidly easy. When you were writing it, were you thinking of easiness because of the sort of nursery rhyme quality of, of songs that you yeah, want to have in a children's movie? I wanted it, definitely wanted it to be nursery rhyme. I definitely wanted kids to feel immediately familiar and comforted by its message. Um, to to think that everything's going to be okay, and if the insects in the story are telling them everything's going to be okay, and they all have an example how they're going to make it better uh, for for James, um, yeah, I was really miffed not getting that. But I I I thought about it a year a year or so after the whole thing fell through, and it was a combination. It was the perfect storm of I was not going to get that job. Uh, it was the perfect storm of the animator, Henry Selleck, really wanted me to do it. But Disney Corps, or didn't Disney Corpse, it can be pronounced, <laughs> the cryogenically frozen Disney Corpse, um, had already chosen uh, Randy Newman. Uh, they wanted him again because they'd worked with him and they knew they could get him dirt cheap. Um, uh, for their degrading terms but uh, they already wanted Randy Newman and I, I think they went through the pretend rigmarole of offering me uh, an appalling contract you know I, I got so many thousand dollars not very much um, I think it was uh, off the top of my head it's something like twelve thousand dollars something like that and wasn't, wasn't, didn't you tell me there was a copyright grab as well that they wanted all rights yeah, to? Yeah, they wanted all the copyright in the songs for perpetuity, um, which meant that you were paid about $3,000 for each song, but that was a total buyout. And at the time, $3,000 was probably something like, you know, £2,000 or less. Um, and that would have, they would have owned that material uh forever and could have done whatever they wanted with it i mean I, I don't know whether i was a stooge so that they if i'd have said yes to those conditions they could have then taken that to randy newman and said well andy says he'll do it for only <laughs> this much and you know oh, randy oh man i guess i'll do it even cheaper so um i i was set up to fail with that because they really wanted randy newman and uh but it's such a shame because they're, all of them are just such lovely songs and you can just imagine them working so well in that movie. Yeah, I, I, although I like some of Randy's material, I didn't think his songs were that great in that, in that film. Um, they, they didn't have the straight to the kids' soul sort of vibe um, that I think mine had. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to be a little boastful there and say that. Yeah, and did, and, um, and did you find it easy to, is, in fact, is it easier to sort of take on a persona where you didn't have to be um, that guy from that pop group? You could just be the songwriter who was going to write a sweet, melodic uh, set of songs. I was so excited to be asked. I, 
um, thought of all four and a couple of others which never made the grade but I thought of all four in a week I was so excited I thought whoa a Disney film and I'm gonna be writing the songs right oh my goodness what a dream uh, and yes, I, I wrote I wrote the four, the, the ones that you hear on the Fuzzy Warbles, those all fell out in one week. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as everyone knows, I was not picked for the job and uh, poor old Henry Selleck as a, as a sort of sop to me not getting it. He said, well, look, do you want to come to the, 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 the British premiere, which I think was in Cardiff or Swansea, it was in one of the you know, big Welsh cities. He said, look, I'll, I'll send you a stretch limo and, you know, I'll give you tickets for you and your kids because they were like, you know, eight and six or something at the time. That's not the cost of them. That's the <laughs> that's their ages. Um, and so we we went in this ludicrous stretch limo all, all the way down to, to Wales to, um, uh, to this uh, premiere of it. And, uh, you know, he, I think he felt a bit guilty about that but it, it didn't stop him saying to me are there any projects which you would like to do as animation that you think are great stories and I recommended him um Letters from a Lost Uncle by Mervyn Peake all oh, right one of my favorite kids books absolutely wonderful book that I didn't know about until my 20s and um he got a copy of it read it and said he loved it and he could see himself animating that and um, he contacted me and said, do you want to, if, if it does become an animated film, do you want to be thinking about writing some songs for it? So I actually wrote, I certainly wrote the theme, the theme tune uh, for it. Uh, Letters from our stone, fourth right through on the mat. Letters from our stone, what could be better than that? A trip around the world inside a giant balloon. Yeah, and so I, I already had the theme song going, and I think I had a couple more in prototype form and I went for a meeting with a company that was going to be funding they but they bought the rights to the book from the estate of Mervyn Peak and uh, I flew to New York to meet up with a company that were going to be putting the money behind it the design work was going to be done by oh god I've just forgotten his name Lane Smith uh, Lane Smith, the artist Lane Smith, did the Pinky Cheese Man and other kids' books. He was going to be the designer. He was going to design the characters. Um, Henry Selick was going to be the, the animator. I was going to be the, the music writer. And the film was going to be made by Weinstein's company. The and, lucky escape uh, there. What's his name? Weinstein. Harvey. Harvey, yeah. And so I, um, I had to have a meeting with Lane Smith, Henry Selick, um, and myself and Harvey Weinstein. And we'll save that anecdote for <laughs> I've never seen staff so afraid of their boss. And I've never seen so much dinner down, some, down the front of somebody's sweatshirt. Uh, but um, we'll save the anecdote for another time. Yeah, that could be a whole podcast in itself, couldn't it? Yeah, but needless to say, um, Harv didn't get the concept he didn't get the uh he didn't understand the characters in the book this this seafaring adventuring uncle who had a a, a fake leg made out of a narwhal tusk and he had a pet turtle called jackson who carried all his art equipment for him i mean what is it with this fucking dog following him everywhere what the <laughs> fuck is it? it's a turtle it's a dog it's a turtle who gets a fucking turtle dog who fucking cares i don't get the fuck you know he, it was like having it was like having a lunch with with um joe pesci or something yeah. <laughs> joe pesci on steroids <laughs> so needless to say that um that film didn't happen either but somewhere in the vaults is um is the theme song for letters from the lost uncle I think however bad the music industry is, the film industry must be about 10 times worse to work in. Oh, just yeah. Nothing ever gets made. Everything's always in development. I mean, you think you're, you you're going to lose your drawers in the music industry. You're going to lose your drawers 10 times over 
in the film industry. What do you call that noise? So how, how are you in, in this? Are you, are you good at lockdown? Are you bad at lockdown? Um, it's absolutely nothing any different to how I live my life. You're a natural lockdown-y. I am, I'm a, a homebody of the nth degree. Um, I do miss... Uh, I do miss occasionally going out to a bar or a, a restaurant, but I have to watch my drinking these days because I'm in need of a heart operation and uh, I find that any alcohol messes my heart rhythm up terribly for days afterwards. So I'm taking my life in my hands every time I, every time I have a drink these days until I, get the, until I get the procedure to sort it out. So this is actually good discipline for you then? Well, I had a stent last year uh, but that never cured the problem. And uh, so this is, I mean, I had two pints of beer on Saturday, last Saturday night, and I'm still suffering the consequences of the arrhythmal heart now. Yeah. So I've got to be very careful, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, when I get my heart sorted out, watch out. It's all round to the pub. Yeah, yeah, it'll be Keith Moon too. <laughs> but yeah, I, I miss, I miss, uh, I usually go out every Friday with Stu Rowe, the musician and producer, Stuart Rowe. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we sit and put the world to rights over wine or beer and some food and stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm missing Stu, you know. What do you call that noise? Okay, people, people say, what are the opening chords to You're the Wish You Are I Had? Okay. Yeah, Andy, tell us what the opening chords to You're, You're the Wish You Are even have to have. Just, how did you, I was just thinking about that, and Optimism Splinters, how, how did you even sing those songs, uh, you know, live? You're the Wish is quite easy to sing. What, what you, you play in a, a, a beginner's lesson open G. The first G position you get with the, those strings ringing open, you know, it's less than yeah. one. But you slide it all up so that your open G has still got the, the D and the G strings ringing open, but the other strings you're holding shut, performing whatever the hell chord that is. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a... What was I supposed to do? Which is a strange change, I know. And then, of course, B sets you up beautifully for the chorus, which is an A. All easy stuff, but it's the it's that, that first chord you may not get. It's an open G slid up so that the G note is a C on the bottom, but you keep your fingers, your other fingers in the same relative positions. And that, that melody is just sort of fearless. It just keeps on going up and up and up and up. Did it, was that like a challenge to yourself about how, how high you could get above from anything else? Kind of, yeah. I, the, the most sort of shocking melodies are the ones that fall out and you don't know where they came from. You know, you don't plan them. They just, they sabotage you. And then you go around asking everybody, have you heard this song before? Have you heard this one before? Kind of, yeah. But it, if they're my melodies, the answer is usually, no, mate, that's too fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely nobody has ever done anything like that, the melody you've just done then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give you that one. You won. <laughs> well, I, well, I've I've just mentioned. Oh, well, did you mention Optimism's Flames? Yeah, Optimism's Flames. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of my pet chords. The 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 you got Terry and Colin doing the That's quite regular. That's that's four four. Mm -hmm. I'm playing. A closed chord of C up high here. Uh, I'm not very in tune, but I'm not going to dick around for half an hour trying to tune this up. And I throw uh, with my little finger a G, an octave three note G, onto that C. So I'm rocking between a, a C7 and a, with an added G chord in it. So it's... Da, 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 da
see what I mean? The, yeah, the, yeah. That's that's in a that's in a different time signature to the bass and drums. That's like um, God. If I was Jacob Collier, I could tell you what the time signature is. Um, but it, it's it's the the actual chords that it's based around the bam. That rather magical chord there. I have no idea what it's called. Um, I've used that several times. It's actually the beat town chord. But I, if I like a chord and it's it's got a nice exotic flavour to it, I I don't um, I don't waste it. I wring every drop of goodness out of it. I mean, how many times have I used these chords? Uh, we'll have things like um. Welcome to the garden of earthly delight. I'm not on good voice today, so. But it's almost identical chords to um, um, a wonder, wonder, what a wonderful. It's that's actually. Um, if you play a, a closed G, but let the G string ring open, and you slide it up to the B flat position, that's your Garden of Earthly Delights chord. Welcome to the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is that chord there is uh, Rhodes Girdle the Globe. Re the intro recycled down a tone. <laughs> Throw anything out, you see. You've got to use your junk, Mark. Am I, am, I, am I wrong in hearing the, la the last balloon in there as well, or is that different? Uh, last balloon is more um, sheesh. I couldn't play that on guitar, although I think I thought it up on guitar. Once it got converted to keys, it was like no going back. No going back. Everything will be all right is, is done on piano, isn't it? On, on, yes, on the it recording. is. So yes. did, you, it did you write it that way around? Uh, uh, I think it was written on a guitar. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm much faster on a guitar. I can, I can pretty much play anything I need to play on a guitar. Um, but uh, keys, I'm really idiotically slow at. You know, I, I can find the chord I need, and I think I know what the next chord might need to be, but I then spend, you know, at least 20 seconds getting my fingers into the position <laughs> of the next chord, by which time the song has died, you know. So thank goodness for a sequencer, so I can I can put my piano parts in one at a time, you know, one chord at a time. Unless you get a good piano player and they can go, oh, you just mean this. That's what you're playing, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to get them in the same room at the same time as you're writing. That's, yeah, that's exactly. You know, I, I sat down with Dave Gregory and played in Rook, you know, which was all done with me doing one chord at a time in a sequencer. And uh, the bugger only went and learned it. <laughs> it's really complex to play, you know, especially the those sections, you know, the kind of flying over the roof sections. Uh, it took me ages to build that, but he went and learnt it and was, you know, played it in the studio live on a on an upright piano, no sequencer involved. Spit. If there was no carpet in here, I'd spit. <laughs> I'm going to go back to two or three songs there when you were talking about different time signatures. When when, when you were doing doing that kind of thing where where Colin and, and Terry would be playing one time signature and you'd be playing a different one over the top, was that a, was it a conscious thing? Was it was it just the feel of it? Were you were you kind of being intellectual and saying, oh, how about no 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 intellectual? It's all to do with you feel a funk or you feel a, a mood. Like Colin was was telling us in the rehearsal room about a new song he was writing called Day In, Day Out. Um, I should be, I should use a plectrum for this. And him and Terry had this very purposefully mundane boom, 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 very mundane, slow walking plodding rhythm even but that was intentional you know 
and we were talking about something to make it sound like machines. Let's see if I can remember how to play my part. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's like, um, it sounds mechanical, but it's meant to. Mm -hmm. Meant to sound mechanical, and it's meant to sound slightly across the rhythm and not warm and not welcoming because the subject matter is about drifting off into boredom at work and just longing for the weekend. In other words, it was, it, it was the subject matter that was driving you in that um, uh, irregular pattern. That Absolutely. It, wasn't, it wasn't a kind of, oh, let's sit down and write a song in 17, No, 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 no. It's not that way around. It, they are, the, the things we played either came up from a uh, discussion in rehearsals where you, you know, you'd sit the band down and you say, look, I've, I've written this thing and I'd really like it to have a kind of blah, blah, blah sound to it. Uh, usually not, not like another band. It, you're usually describing an emotion or a situation. And how can we make this situation, this emotion into, into guitar music? Um, but, uh, as I say, that, that day in, day out, uh, Colin didn't envisage, he envisaged the mundanity of the bass and drums, but uh, uh, I, was, I was really pleased to find the... You know, it, it sounds like the sort of noise uh, the glop of the glop of the machine would make. Name the film. Name the film. Um, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay, and I'm not going to not going to put you out of your misery either. Yeah, well, that can be a challenge to all the, all, all our listeners uh, to go off and, and Google it. What do you call that noise? So yeah, uh, there's an awful lot of um, description of uh, uh, of moods and things. You know, like um, possibly one of the best arranged things that we've ever recorded was uh, "Man Who Sailed Around His Soul," where um, one of the few times that Todd Rundgren sat down and played nice with me uh, was asking how I heard the song going because he was fascinated by the melody and the chords and stuff. And the, the fact that I had it in a, in a, a seven, a count of seven, which never rests, seven fours and eights rest. Mm -hmm. But, but seven doesn't, it's always questing onwards. Um, and I said, well, I, I would like it to be like a, a, a kind of cross between like John Barry spy theme, but with a beatnik edge, you know, because the, the lyrics to it are all, um, you know, examining the human condition. But I like the idea of the man who, you know, the man with the golden gun, mm -hmm. the man who, haunted himself the man who has a, has a real spy connotation so I thought well let's put them together and let's put spy theme John Barry with beatnik um and and bless his cotton ears he he came up with a brilliant arrangement almost overnight I think and did the time signature change at that point uh no it's it's still uh you know it's it's like the the, the beatnik club uh uh the upright bass and bongos on the intro, you yeah, boom, 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 to boom, 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 to boom, 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 to boom, boom, boom. That's that's still sevens, but it the scene is set. You've got the the smoky beatnik cellar, you know, late fifties New York or something, with people getting up and doing their deep human condition poetry. And that's kind of the lyrics to the man who sailed around his soul. It's all about discovering yourself. And once you've had an idea, whether it's you or Colin or whoever, whoever um, and, and, you, and you take it to the band, the band's, and the band's all playing it, um, were you always gifted enough musicians to be able to cope with a, with a weird time signature or two weird time signatures happening at the same time? I, I think if we ever thought outside of what we couldn't do ourselves, then you'd get A and other coming in. You know, you'd get a trumpet player coming in or you'd get a string quartet coming in um do you see what i mean if we yeah, if we, yeah. couldn't, we couldn't play Shelley and 
viola and violins and stuff we'd have to get string players in or if if we we couldn't play flugelhorn or trumpet we'd have to get those players in or euphonium or whatever it was um and that, that was why apple venus was such a delight it was the first time that i heard our music played by an orchestra at full belt and it was mm. You know, and you're stood there in the middle of it, and it was so thrilling. It's uh, they're bloody loud an orchestra. They're really, um, you know, it's like motorheads in dicky bows. You know, they were they were <laughs> motorhead with with white shirts, dicky bows, and a little hanky under their chin. Uh, and a feet to motorhead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> motorhead that are constantly looking at their their watches because they they want to go into overtime so they get paid more money and they <laughs> mysteriously mysteriously dropping their violin bows just as you're about to do a take i know the tricks but apart from that like you didn't have trouble if if um is it runaways as in five five four time you know you didn't have oh uh, no it's that. um it's uh, english roundabout english roundabout sorry yeah yeah, yeah. Same on. but you could cope with that yeah um I, the thing was with Terry, <clears throat> I, I'm not so much the other drummers because I don't know if the other drummers we work with were challenged in terms of time signatures that much. Um, that might prove me wrong, but um, Terry, you could program Terry like a human machine. You could make him play. If you'd sit and said to him, okay, Terry, play me something in 5-4. Oh, I can't fucking do that. I don't want to fucking hell are you. The fucking hell you fucking thing I am. I can't fucking do that shit. Fucking get off your eye horse, Partridge. But if you sat with him and said, look, can you go thump, click, thump, click, thump, thump, click, and then hit that one there, you know, like, a bit like the Trogs tapes, if you've ever heard the Trogs tapes. Mm -hmm. um, you could literally program him and he'd tell you to leave the room for a while and he'd you'd hear him playing this unusual rhythm getting it fixed in his soul and then you could play these unusual time signatures like um yeah english roundabout is i think it's five four and, and you would all find it uh, straightforward enough to play along with a five four rhythm yeah because what would what would happen is you would find the patterns in your hands. You you don't think about counting. If you count, you you're lost. Mm -hmm. Don't count. You you feel it in your soul. You feel the pattern in your fingers. You let your you let your fingers do the walking, as it were. But if you count, every time I tried to count something, I'd fall over. Because I suppose that's like the effect of a of a that the listener has is the listener doesn't sit there unless they're particularly musically minded thinking oh that's obviously a, a, a seven four signature you know they they just you know they hear no, the song. no you get swept along and and the, the thing with English roundabout was um, it's got to sound like scurrying cars going round and round and round this circuit but the fact is it doesn't matter if they sound a little bit like toy cars if they're uh, rickety and clickety. Um, I mean, I think English Roundabout came from, the sound of it came from partly watching the beat playing. Uh, we did a tour with the beat supporting us, you know, like European mm -hmm. festivals and stuff. And you, you stood at the side of the stage watching them most nights. And you're thinking, yeah, that's really good how they've knitted these small sounds together. We can do that pretty damn easy. Yeah, I've got, I've got a mirror in the bathroom in my head now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and the fact that, that Colin and I had always wanted to rewrite, um, oh, what's that thing by the one that goes, yeah, who is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Pentangle and it's called Light Flight or Night Flight. I'll take your word for it, yes, but Pentangle, yeah. yeah. Pair of us always wanted to rewrite that, and Colin beat me to it. Uh, but the combination of, uh, of uh, um, you know, us both wanting to rewrite something in that vein, uh, nagging sort of small turn-down electrics and or acoustics, and that nattering 5-4 drums, and then you're sitting watching the beat 
every night and you're thinking you know what we can do that piece of piss we can do that um and so that that for example is where uh, english roundabout came from and it's to some extent that's the, also the same story with um uh uh yacht dance um because that's in threes you see and I thought to myself, I, I figured out why, what, what did I want to do? Why did it come out as a yacht dance? The truth was I had a, a song called Honey for the Queen. Uh, collecting, honey for the Queen, collecting, oh, collecting. And I thought, shit, now I don't know what, what am I writing a song about being a bee for? I don't know what a bee thing's like. Um, but I've been in love and I know what the sensation of love is. And so I turned that, that. Into threes. And so was, is there an element of when you were at, at that writing stage of, of the head coming in more than the heart or, you know, were you sort of intellectually thinking? The description of, of just moving the, I, I was annoyed with myself for trying to write about being a B for a start, <laughs> but I did like that holding down the E chord up high and then moving the root note around. made the melody to me uh, but I thought let me try it in a different um, time signature and I, I tried slowing it down and putting it into threes and I think because I grew up listening on the radio to messing about on the river which is a song also in threes and also with that sort of tempo You know, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, what I'm playing is it sounds like yachts. Of course, being in love is like being a yacht. You're you've got the wind in your sails. You're happy. You're moving around on the surface. You're not getting dragged down into the morass. Being in love is like being a yacht. And uh, I found the song immediately. But I wouldn't have found it if I'd have insisted on keeping it in 4-4 and insisted on trying to write, write a song about being a honeybee. <laughs> No experience of being a honeybee at all. So then, it, it, do you have any messages to, 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 to the people who are listening to this who have stayed, <laughs> if people have still listened all the way to the end of, of, yeah. of this thing, about um, being cheerful, keeping optimisms, flames burning, and... Uh, Actually, no, no, don't necessarily be, a che be cheerful. Be miserable if you want. Uh, just, just, just be miserable if you fancy. Not, not all the time, just go in and out, you know. Be neutral is the best thing. Be neutral because insanity lay either side of neutral. You know, if you're miserable all the time, that's insanity. If you're happy all the time, that's insanity. Uh, everyone should run on neutral and dip occasionally into misery and dip occasionally into joy. But I, I would, uh, my advice for all the lockdown minions would be to do that creative thing you've always wanted to do. Start writing that book. But I don't know how to write. How do you write? You sit down and pick up a pen and start. That's how you start writing. Look, I'm writing. And uh, don't, don't start with any preconception. If you've ever wanted to write a book, just start. And you'll find it coming down your arm subconsciously, down your pen onto that paper, and you'll find before many days, many weeks, many months are out, you've got a book and you didn't have a book before. If you ever wanted to learn an instrument, if you've got one of those instruments around the house, do it. If you ever wanted to write poetry, do it. But I can't write poetry. Yes, you can. How do you write poetry? You sit down, pick up a pencil and begin. It's it's uh, 
really use this time. This time is a gift. And as exactly coming back to that yacht dance example, if you've got a, a, a song that's not working or a book make that's a, not working or a, or a meal that's not working, then you can yeah. replace those things. Uh, but but you've got the, that chord structure or that sequence of words. Yeah, or that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If you've written a song about what it feels like to be a bee collecting honey uh, and it's not working, fold up the piece of paper and make a nice boat out of it. Make a nice little yacht out of it. <laughs> Sail it in the bath. You know, you'd, uh, there's no such thing as failure. There's, uh, one cannot fail. One, the best you can do is to succeed. The second best you can do is to fail and learn the lessons from that failure, because failure will teach you all the lessons you know to be successful. There's a Samuel Beckett line about failing better. Fail and fail better. Yeah, exactly. There's no such thing as failure. I mean, I, I used to think, I used to, you know, we used to put albums out that the public would not buy. They would not get in the top 100. They would not get played on radio. People never spoke about them. People never had them in their collections. Now we're supposed to be, oh, my God, they're all geniuses. They're all genii. Um, no, it, it was just a long series of failures that, made us want to get the next album better and they didn't buy the next album so the one after that's got to be even better there's no such thing as failure it's it's all lessons that you could not buy you've been listening to life lessons with andy partridge life lessons andy partridge will have to have you on the xcc podcast many more times again oh, in the future because well, we I haven't i don't know if i answered anything you wanted to talk about but you, so... you gave all the correct answers you've got five out of five <laughs> Good fun to Chinway. Yes, it's been fantastic. Uh, and really, really good of you. Dice all the words up and make me say intelligent things. It's the wonder of editing. Yes, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best there. But thank you very, very much, Andy Partridge. Um, you've been listening to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast. Come again. What you call that noise? The XTC podcast. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, then it will be a great help if you could go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher, where you can become a pink thing, a humble daisy, or a knight in shining karma and lend support to the XTC podcast. If you'd like to read more like this, then go to xtclimelight.com, where you can buy copies of my two books, the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, a limelight anthology, and What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book. Thanks for listening. Why do you call that noise? Why do